Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is not Alone Beck, Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University. We'll be discussing her article, Times They Are Changing, When Tech Employees Revolt, which is forthcoming in the Maryland Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Anat, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. Well, thank you for all of your support of the podcast over the last year or so, and it's great to have you on as a guest. So the subtitle of your article is very provocative, When Tech Employees Revolt. I wondered if maybe we could start the conversation there with maybe what activism we've seen from tech employees over the last few years and maybe since the start of the COVID-19 crisis. What have been their motivations and what have some of the outcomes of this activism or this tech employee revolt looked like? Sure. Tech employee activism is not a new phenomenon. In the past few years, I've been documenting what's happening And you're going to find many of the largest companies in our economy, right? We have Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce, and lately, Facebook. In the Facebook example, you're going to find two forms of employee activism, which I call collective and individual. In the individual context, you will find that Facebook employees have recently turned, last month, they turned to social media platforms and the internet. And they publicly disagree with their CEO, with Mark Zuckerberg, over his inaction on our president's social media posts, right? And you can compare what Facebook did with regards to the social media posts and Twitter. And I even saw reports that some employees even quit their jobs to show that they disagree with the way that Zuckerberg handled the employee activism and this event. And I just wanted you to note that Zuckerberg controls 57.9% of the voting rights on Facebook's board, okay? But despite that fact, he took these complaints very seriously. And you could also see what was the side effect of these complaints, and that is the, the boycott against Zuckerberg, right? You could see a coalition of different groups. It started with the Color of Change, ADL, the Sleeping Giant, the Free Press, Common Sense Media. And they started a campaign against Facebook that was called Stop Hate for Profit. And later, you found large companies in our economy that joined the campaign. It included uh, North Face. North Face was the first one to join the boycott. REI, Patagonia, Unilever, Verizon, and more. And what started with employee activism turned into a boycott on the company. And it really, what it signifies is that employee activism, bad-mounting the company in public, has economic ramifications. Not only does it have economic ramifications, as we see in the Facebook example, it can also lead to regulation by the government, to new policies. So 
what we're seeing is we're seeing this activism in tech employee and we're seeing that, you know, again, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and other giants are also dealing. And in the other examples, they asked their companies not to deal with the federal government to cancel their contracts because of ethical, geopolitical concerns. And it all ties to, to my opinion, to the purpose of the corporation. What's happening is that we have this rise in tech employee power. And those employees are using the power to change the status quo. I wonder why we see activism from tech employees pretty front and center, but maybe not from employees of other types of companies, like people who work in meat processing plants, which have been heavily affected by the COVID-19 crisis. Why might that be? And what might that tell us about the interaction of HR and human capital management and corporate governance? Sure. So the first thing that I wanted to note is that what we must understand is that tech employees are very different than employees in other industries. And there's several reasons for that. And I'll outline the reasons. First has to do with our new economy, right? Our economy is known as the knowledge economy. For the last, I want to say about 40 years, We've seen this transformation in the market and in the corporations in the market. And that is, we depend on knowledge. We depend on our employees to create human capital, the human capital, the intangible assets today. They account for 85% of the market value of U.S. corporations. Okay. In the past, you know, about 40 years ago, before this, what we call knowledge revolution, about 80% of the market value of U.S. corporations was attributed to tangible assets, for example, plants, machinery, buildings. But today, research and development, licenses, patents, they are the ones who are contributing to growth in the economy. And it's very important for companies to continue to grow. They have to attract and retain and engage their employees. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete in this market. And by the way, there's a, a shortage of knowledgeable employees. And that leads me to my second point, that tech employees are usually highly educated, they're trained, they're highly paid. So they're very different. They receive specific training, and they are very valuable for the firm. So if there is turnover, if there is public complaints about the firm, it's very costly for the firm because it will cost the firm a lot to monitor the human capital, okay? Now, there is what I like to call a war for talent, and I've been documenting it. It started in my unicorn stock option paper, and that is this rise in these talented employees, the startup tech employees, and they usually get stock options, and the stock options are a device to keep them in the firm, to get these employees to share the equity of the firm. And by sharing the equity, the employees invest in the firm, they invest their human capital, and that improves the overall firm productivity, shareholder returns, and profit level. Again, so we have these knowledgeable tech employees, and what they do is they contribute their sweat equity, their human capital, and the firm benefits from it, okay? Now, another thing that's also very important to note, and that is another factor, 
there are institutional changes. So what we're seeing on the one hand, we're seeing these very powerful employees, right? The tech employees, but on the other hand, you ask me, what about the non-tech employees, right? What about the people who work at the plants? Or what about the people who work at the cafeteria at these tech companies, right? What's happening there? Well, overall, in within the rise of the knowledge technology, what we also see is we see this environment in the United States that is overall less supportive of worker power, okay? And what we're seeing is actions by different states through legislation and different groups to prevent employees from unionizing, okay? They prevent employees from having organized labor. There are always fights over minimum wage. There are changes within firm structures. You'll see that there's a rise in shareholder power and shareholder activism. And that activism, for example, has led to pressures on companies to cut labor costs, to reduce wages within the firms, and to increasingly outsource and subcontract labor. You also have external economic conditions, right? There are increased competition for labor uh, from technology or from low-wage countries. And all these changes, what they've done is they've reduced U.S. workers' relative bargaining power. So you have this, on the one hand, you have these very powerful, what I like to call tech workers that are rising, and on the other hand, the non-tech workers, where their rights are being affected and they don't have as much bargaining power with the firm. The tech employee activism involves several issues. We have social, ethical considerations. We have considerations that have to do with investment, development, production, manufacturing. And what you'll find in the United States is there's a paradigm shift in thinking about talent management, about corporate culture. And in 2020, CEOs in the United States finally realized that they need to take their talent seriously. And that is because of tech employees. And they realized that this concept of shareholder primacy is not a good business strategy for attracting, engaging, and retaining their talented workforce. Again, because of this war on talent. In the paper, you situate employee activism within the ongoing stakeholder versus shareholder debate in corporate governance. I wonder if you could sketch for the listeners what that debate is and where employee interests might fall into it. Sure. So I, I don't know, you have to tell me if on, on June 24th, if you also watched the debate between Colin Meyer from Oxford and Harvard professor Lucien Bepchok, and it was a great debate about stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism. Did you watch it? I did not, I'm afraid, but I, I did read the blow by blow in your paper. So I have to say, I stayed up all night so excited about the debate and I couldn't wait because I was writing the paper. I was finalizing my paper as the debate was going on. That was the week when I finalized the paper. And the debate illustrates the differences that we're seeing between the United States and I want to say, and I hope I'm not too general, the rest of the world, but especially the UK. Okay. And that is about the difference about the thinking on the theory of the firm and the purpose of the corporation. And it's a very old debate that I'm also wrestling with here in this paper. And I have to note that I started almost 12 years ago after the last economic crisis. I was a doctoral student at Cornell. 
And Lynn Stout was my, one of my advisors. And I watched that economic, the 2008 crisis. And I was thinking to myself, is this going to change? Are we going to witness a change from shareholder privacy to stakeholder theory? And back then, I really thought so, because there was a lot of criticism, especially geared towards the large corporations and the managers that were managing them and the institutional investors that were investing in them. And, and, and just to tell you a little bit, right? So since the end of the 20th century, we had the prominent views of Milton Friedman and Michael Jensen, and they were popular in the United States for using shareholder privacy as a corporate governance model. What it means is that shareholder privacy mandates that management of large public firms maximize managerial opportunism, right? They called it shareholder, Lynn Stout actually called it Wall Street supremacy and short-termism. And Lynn claimed that management cannot realistically pursue long-term projects such as research and development because these sort of projects cannot produce instant financial returns to shareholders. Now, I just want to note, there's a big debate on that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that debate right now, but there is even a, a debate on those claims as well. But basically, stakeholder scholars criticize shareholder scholars. And what they're saying is that you can't just take shareholder interests into account, but you have to take other stakeholder interests into account. And today, what we're witnessing, and I think the debate between Bebchuk and Meyer was very important. By the way, I think the debate would have, maybe the result would have been different if it was held at Harvard versus Oxford, okay? I'll give them that. But the issue is, do companies need to take stakeholder interests into account? Do they need to take them into account? Do they need to take society into account? Do they need to take economic, environment? political, social interests into account. According to Meyer, yes. And there's a big movement in the UK. And I have to tell you, it's also happening outside the UK. And that is a movement that relies on the firm's commitment to corporate purpose and defining corporate purpose, having a set of values and making sure that the company acts on those values and what it does, and I understand Webchuk's criticism of that, what it can do, it could also be a backlash. And that is, it can also insulate management from oversight. Okay. And it can also diminish the need for regulation. So I am trying to answer these challenges and the tensions and actually come up with some practical solutions to companies that decide today that they do want to take stakeholder interests into account because there's a big debate at the end and in the long term, whether it's going to be good or bad for business. You express some concern that stakeholderism can increase agency costs by reducing the real constraints that management feels. How do you propose to mitigate some of those costs? That's a great question. Again, even if you look at the recent controversial business roundtable statement, right, on the purpose of a corporation, and that statement included investing in employees as a priority, right? Take a look at Bebchuk's latest paper. In his paper, he shows that many companies that actually signed this statement probably used it for greenwashing purposes, okay? They used it as a public relations move. 
and they haven't taken any drastic steps to implement their own suggestions. And I recognize that. And that is why I'm actually arguing that if public companies do decide to take stakeholder interests into account, maybe as a society, we should actually require them to formally change their charters, right? Their certificates of incorporation. And I think more importantly, what I want them to do is to be required by law to disclose additional information and to file periodically with the relevant state and federal authorities. And we already have, for example, public benefit corporations, right? Public benefit corporations are currently required to disclose to their shareholders and the public information on their various efforts to promote the public benefit mission and purpose and the results of these efforts. By the way, you have different states that have different reporting requirements. Even Delaware has a new statute on the public benefit corporations, okay? So I think that if public companies are saying that they're going to take stakeholder interests into account, they need to do more. It needs to be more than a statement. And let me tell you of another new development, which I don't know if it's going to if it's gonna be signed into law or not, but recently there's new legislation that was recently passed by the House in Delaware that's going to make it easier for a traditional corporation to convert to a public benefit corporation. Okay? So in the past, it was very difficult and what Delaware is doing, it's recognizing this shift that I'm telling you about that's happening around the, the world, and it's now hitting the U.S. This thinking about purpose of the corporation, this thinking about integrating stakeholder interests into account. And so if we just look at the state corporate law, it's very easy, right? If you're a regular company, you can now convert to a public benefit corporation. At least in Delaware, they're going to make it easier. Let's see if it's going to happen or not. Something on the good news, I don't know if you follow the financial markets, but recently Lemonade, for example, did an IPO and they did great, right? The public really responded well to the IPO and that was the second public benefit corporation that did an IPO. Now, that's with regards to state law. With regards to the federal authorities, I want you to note that there's been a lot of pressure on federal authorities to also take human management into account. And there's been a lot of discussion with how to change reporting of public companies with regards to disclosure of information on talent management. And I personally think that the SEC, for example, should move to a prescriptive approach, which is a specific line item requirement, which means that it will require public companies to disclose information on talent management. Okay. More than that, the SEC has the tool and the capabilities, and they are asked by different players today to develop agreed upon metrics so that we can assess the efforts of public companies and that we can assess the reports that they should file on performance results, right? How are they taking human capital and talent management into account? So again, in the paper, I go into detail on that. What do I think should happen at the state level and what do I think should happen in the federal level? Because you have to look at things from a systems approach, right? There isn't going to be just a quick fix in one thing. People are just rushing to say, let's change corporate law. And others are saying, well, we don't need to change corporate law because currently, if managers really want to, 
they can take stakeholder interests into account. They're going to be protected by the business judgment rule as long as they made a, a calculated business decision, right? So to me, it's more than that. To me, I'm asking, does our corporate law permit managers to take stakeholder interests into account? And I answer yes. But I think we should be doing more than that. They shouldn't just use that again as a public relations tool. If they are really serious about taking it into account, this is where I'm answering what Bevchuk is saying, that they're just going to use it for greenwashing. And more than that, they might even abuse, right? And say, oh, we did it for stakeholders and they're abusing their power. I say, we want transparency. We want disclosure. We want to see how you're taking those interests into account and what are your metrics for assessment on those issues. What key takeaways or open questions would you like our listeners to be thinking about? Thank you. So there's a few things. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done here in the United States with regards to the purpose of the corporation. But I think that I want to see how the conversation continues here and accepts what's happening around the world And let's think more practically along the lines that I'm suggesting. And that is, okay, CEOs are going to at least say that they're taking stakeholder interests into account. And if they do, how are we going to hold them accountable? I say, let's take this debate further, right? The debate, I feel like, is always stuck between shareholders and stakeholders on the other side. I say, let's continue with the debate. Let's assume that... If managers want to do it, they can take stakeholder interests into account. They'll be protected by the business judgment rule. Again, they publicly have stated that they're going to do it. For example, they're going to take employee interests into account. And with employees, it's the easiest. Why? Because we have HR in those large companies. We already have offices that document salaries and document diversity initiatives and and document how they're treating their talent and what's their management style. Let's have some transparency on that. That will give us as investors the tool to assess whether the CEOs are basically greenwashing or are they doing something with it. And I forgot to note also, you know, it's summer if people have time, a great book that I wanted to recommend, and that is Grow the Pie by Alex Edmonds. It was recommended to me by uh, my mentor at Rock, and it's a great book. I highly recommend it. And Edmonds was really discussing how we should change the way we're thinking about this debate and how we can move this forward. And that's what I was trying to do in this piece. I'm trying to say, okay, let's move forward. There's a lot of need here. There's a lot of need. There's more work that can be done on this. And I I would love to see more discussion. I would love to see more papers on this. And I'm actually working on two new papers that are hopefully will be coming out soon as well. I'm submitting them for publication this cycle. They both have to do with talent management. One paper is called Bargaining Inequality, Golden Handcuffs and Asymmetric Information. And, you know, I was dubbed as unicorn lady. So, of course, I had to write another paper about unicorns. (laughs) And it's about uh, unicorn firms. And the fact that they are repeat players in competitive tech markets, 
And what I'm doing there, I'm showing how they're bargaining with their labor, with their employees. And a recent trend that I'm criticizing, and that is that they are insisting, and I want to say we've been seeing it since 2017, 2018, so the past two, three years, we've had this practice where these tech companies are insisting that their employees waive their inspection rights under Delaware General Corporation Law, Section 220, as a condition to receiving stock options from the company. Basically, Section 220 gives you a protection as a stockholder in a company. You have an ownership right in a company, and you can inspect the books and records of a Delaware corporation. Okay? So there was a case, it was called Domo, where an employee, a tech employee, tried to enforce that right. He fought with the company for over a year. Finally, the case was litigated in Delaware, and the decision was that he wanted to value his stock options, and the decision was the company had to provide him with information. Now, remember, these are private companies, so they don't usually provide information to employees. Now, I want you to note that Section 220 is a statutory requirement, and according to Delaware case law, companies cannot waive that in their charter or their bylaws. But what's happening is that they're making employees waive it specifically in contract, right? In the stock option agreements that they signed following that decision. And how do I know this? I have a great research assistant. We've been able to follow public filings of tech companies that went public. And we find many that have that new provision in them since that decision was made. So that's one paper that I'm working on. And the other paper is No More Old Boys Club, Institutional Investors' Fiduciary Duty to Promote Women's Equality in Corporate Boards. Again, one of the really hot buttons in corporate law and governance today has to do with the boardroom diversity with an emphasis on gender equality. And unfortunately, in the last decades, despite the fact that women have improved their economic and political status and have really advanced in the workforce and in the labor markets in the United States and around the world, they have yet to achieve parity with men on issues that concern representation and participation in the corporate world. And you can see that when you take a look, it's very easy to measure When you take a look at the representation of female directors in the boardrooms of uh, major public and private companies. And so there are increasing calls for action from various groups, including academics, regulators. And uh, it's a joint project. I'm working on it with Professor Darren Rosenblum and Judge Michal Agmongonen. And it's a huge honor to work with them. And we have a pretty new theory and suggestion on this, so much so that we only uploaded the abstract on SSRN and we already have over 700 views. So that paper is coming out soon and it's the first time that the legal claim on fiduciary duty and institutional investors with regards to women's equality was made. So I'm really excited about this project. We've already had so many invitations for speaking engagements, and I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to make a huge impact on uh, women's rights and women's equality, which is very much needed. All right. We'll look forward to seeing those hit SSRN when they are ready. Our guest today has been Anat Alonbeck, 
Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University. We've discussed her article, Times They Are Unchanging, When Tech Employees Revolt, which is forthcoming in the Maryland Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Anat, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.